Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and our NOTAM system sure works here. Be advised we have a lot to talk about this week. There's been a lot of important news, and we have a very interesting interview with Peter Greenberg, who, as many of you know, has spent much of his life on television reporting on travel. Peter's a fascinating guy, and we're going to ask him to reflect on his long and impactful career. Joining me, of course, is Scott McCartney, who comes to this show fresh from a conversation he had with Southwest Airlines Chief Executive Bob Jordan. Scott, I'm eager to hear more about that for sure. Ben, I look forward to talking about it. Bob Jordan clarified some things we didn't know about the epic Southwest Christmas crisis, but he also confused me about some aspects of this disaster and how the company is responding. I'll be very curious to see what you think about what Bob said and what we can expect from Southwest. But before we get into that, let's review some of the other news of the week. First and foremost, we woke up Wednesday to a worldwide surprise from the FAA that changed the name of NOTAMs. Who knew? No longer notices to air men. The FAA more than a year ago changed the name to the gender neutral notices to air missions. No one really cares about this, of course, until the system fails and all takeoffs got grounded. And that's exactly what happened last week. Two contractors apparently corrupted a key data file. There's an investigation underway into whether it was accidental or malicious. You might say, well, it's a critical system. There must be a backup, right? And there is, except the backup system accessed the same corrupt data file and failed. Not exactly a fail safe system. The comedy of errors which inconvenienced millions, although thankfully not on a busy travel day, left Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg eating some crow. After saying canceling flights because of a technology failure was just unacceptable for Southwest, his FAA grounded flights because of a technology failure. What do you think, Ben? Should the FAA reimburse airlines for costs incurred in the NOTAM failure the way Secretary Pete insisted Southwest reimburse customers for costs incurred in the airline's meltdown? That's a great idea, Scott, not one I had thought about. Um, and there'd be an easy way for them to do it by just saying we won't collect airline ticket taxes for a while. But I can't imagine the FAA is going to offer this. They're going to take ownership of the problem, but they're probably also going to say the government's done enough to prop up the industry and the industry fails all the time. So this is one that they've just got to deal with when the FAA mess up. 
Going back to the name change, I was surprised by that too. You know, I used to be a private pilot. I guess legally I still am because I still have my license, although I'm not current. And I always learned that NOTAMs were notices to airmen. I didn't realize that acronym had changed. But like you said, that doesn't really matter. What's interesting to me is that it's possible someone could make the argument, Scott, that our current secretary cares more about what the acronym means than whether his systems really work. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's it's clear that the technology there is inadequate, and uh, and we're going to get more into inadequate technology issues. I want to talk about Southwest. Ben, you wrote a great piece in Forbes this week about the Southwest meltdown. And I thought you were even more spot on after I talked to Bob Jordan late on Friday. He didn't want to be recorded and didn't want to come on the podcast. I hope that will happen when they get done investigating and figure out fixes. But he gave a pretty revealing status report. And I think he struggled a bit with one big question I have about Southwest operations in the future. A note of irony here. Bob Jordan, I think, is the only U.S. airline CEO to come from the technology side of the house. That's how he moved up in Southwest, and yet technology is the issue. To start, Bob said, and my outstanding former colleague Allison Sider has already reported this in the Wall Street Journal, that Southwest has hired consulting firm Oliver Wyman to conduct an independent investigation to document all that failed and make recommendations. In full disclosure, Oliver Wyman is a firm you've done work for, and I'm currently working on a project for them. And Andrew Watterson, Southwest's chief operating officer, was a partner there. So no surprise, Oliver Wyman does great work in aviation. And no surprise that Bob Jordan wants this report fast. Oliver Wyman people were already in Denver last Thursday interviewing. Bob says the report will not take months meaning he wants it in a matter of weeks. Jordan was adamant that Southwest technology, specifically GE Network Operations Crew Optimization Software, formerly called SkySolver, did not break. That's been misreported, he said. The software did what it was supposed to do, but it couldn't solve the problem. Jordan also says, and this is really what'll make your head explode, that Southwest technology is not antiquated. Then he says one sentence later that Southwest needs to modernize. I think the bottom line is that the technology simply is inadequate. Don't call it old, don't call it broken, just say it doesn't do the job. The GE crew optimization software that Southwest has looks ahead and reworks schedules to minimize disruption as problems develop. Jordan says Southwest's unprecedented problem was that things fell apart so quickly, the past problems were crippling, and the software was just overwhelmed. It couldn't figure out what to do. So Southwest had to remake the network by hand. GE is working on a release that will handle past problems better, and Jordan says Southwest will begin testing it next week. Southwest has also put in new procedures in its operations center such as an additional advance warning dashboard showing open crew lines and flights out of tolerance. And guess what? The FAA NOTAM mess 
was a good first test. Southwest did okay. On the customer front, Jordan says 93% of refunds have been processed. He says baggage has all been returned except for 1% found without tags or addresses. One of my favorite pro-traveler hints, always put a business card or your address inside your luggage so that when the tag gets ripped off, they can open it up and figure out who it belongs to. On reimbursements for expenses incurred, Southwest is processing 30000 a day, Jordan says. This is the really tough area. Complaints are already surfacing that Southwest is being stingy and denying expenses. Jordan says they are trying to be reasonable and have paid for things like pet sitting. I don't think they'll pay for your whole canceled wedding, however. Interestingly, Jordan says they are already seeing a lot of redemption of the 25,000 rapid rewards points apology bonus Southwest sent to affected customers. He takes that as a sign many customers are sticking with the airline and ready to fly Southwest again. Jordan said he's sure one outcome will be boosting technology investment beyond the $1 billion a year Southwest already spends. He knows, for example, Southwest needs to use more auto notification to crews so they don't need hundreds of people in ops to call pilots and flight attendants on the phone with schedule changes. Apparently, it takes a union contractual change for the pilots and flight attendants to acknowledge those changes electronically, however. And Jordan defended the point-to-point network. Most people get where they are going without having to connect. It's more efficient for Southwest. Quote, I don't see the network as an issue here, he said. But I asked him if the network was getting so big and complex that it can't efficiently handle disruption. The jigsaw puzzle has so many moving pieces that it can't be put together quickly, no matter how good the software is. Will Southwest look at regionalizing the operation, for example, so problems on the East Coast don't cancel as many flights on the West Coast? Jordan told me before that more than 40% of Southwest aircraft touch Florida every day. What if a pool of planes and crews went in and out of Florida all day and problems there could be isolated? Don't call it hubs, it still could be point to point, but reduce the number of pieces thrown on the floor when storms hit and the solution will be simpler. Jordan said that question is beyond the scope of the rapid Oliver Wyman investigation, but if Oliver Wyman surfaces things that point to network problems, there will be further investigation. Everything is on the table, he said, quote, We've got to be open to any and every answer. My concern, Ben, is that Southwest may not be as open to any and every question. Are the most important questions getting asked here? What a fascinating discussion. And it's encouraging that he was that open so soon on this and willing to report on things like where the refund status is and what customers are liking and not liking about what they're doing. Now, you mentioned my Forbes article at the beginning of this. That article, as you know, Scott, points to their schedule as you have and says because they're linear flying, planes go from one city to another, to another, to another, 
instead of the out and back flying that most other airlines use, compounds the problem that their IT has to solve. And his admission, I guess, that the software worked, but it couldn't work fast enough or couldn't keep up, I think validates that idea somewhat. I do think it's great that they've hired outside support to help them figure out what happened. That independence is often very important for a management team and a board of directors and customers, frankly, to make sure that the company isn't spinning things or hiding things in some way. I'm not suggesting Southwest would have done that anyway, but by bringing in an independent source, you bring that into it, not unlike what the government does when they appoint a special counsel on something, right? And so I think that's great. Oliver Wyman does know about a lot of things aviation-wise, while they will certainly be doing everything Bob asked them around the technology, it will be interesting if they say some things like, but you know you can make this problem simpler if you make these kind of operational changes to your network. Yeah, and this is this is a huge issue. I mean, South, so much of Southwest success and identity has come from the way they operate. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm not suggesting they need to, you know, throw it all, chuck it all and become a hub and spoke carrier. I'm just suggesting that maybe instead of one big operation, you have one giant operation, you have two big operations, or maybe it's four or whoever you do it. The the passengers can still fly linearly, but, you know, it it just, uh, there has to be a way to make the problems smaller if you're going to continually have the entire country upset by a storm here or a storm there. And granted, this was an unprecedented storm. They had problems from Denver all the way through the Midwest and into into the East, unprecedented record cold temperatures, all of that. But we also know from climate change that we're seeing more and more extreme weather. Just look at what's happened recently in California. This is not a problem that's going to go away. And uh, I do worry that they're not asking the toughest of the questions that they need to be asking. Okay, we're going to move on. Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors who help bring you this podcast all year long. Sidley Austin is the go-to law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. And Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company. Their widely respected team has been advising aviation clients around the world for more than 25 years. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Scott, there were a few other news bits of note this week. Delta was the first airline to report fourth quarter earnings, and they were pretty good. $828 million compared to a loss in 2021, but Delta also warned that higher labor costs 
would dent 2023 earnings, even though demand is strong. Delta shares dropped nearly 4%, even though other airlines were strong. I think it's important to note that Delta went out first with new pilot rates that have set a standard that the rest of the industry is reacting to now. So those that sort of sold Delta on higher wages news might be surprised that other airlines are going to see that same thing. And a very curious note from our friend Chris Sloan, who reported in Aviation Daily that proudly all Boeing Alaska Airlines got rid of its last conventional A320 that it acquired from Virgin America. Alaska won't really be all Boeing again, however, until the end of this year. It still flies 10 A320neos that will be returned to lessors by the end of this year. That's a popular airplane, so they'll find new homes quickly, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm with you, Ben, on the Delta earnings. Uh, I think the labor costs, higher labor costs certainly will catch up to everyone. Um, but it's all, it was also interesting to me how strong demand is going to be, at least they think at this moment, um, how strong demand is going to be through 2023. That's what we're hearing from a lot of other industries, uh, some of the banking reports this week, um, that there's really uh, a slowdown. And we're not seeing that as much in travel. Um, and it's it's interesting. I think it, it speaks to the resiliency of travel demand um, that we've seen really uh, all through ever since the um, you know, we got past the early days of the pandemic. Uh, so maybe whatever recession may fall in other industries, uh, the slowdown, um, at least so far, this all could change. But it looks like the slowdown might be uh, definitely a soft landing for airlines. We now welcome the Honorable Peter Greenberg to Airlines Confidential. Peter has probably informed more people about airline news than anybody on the planet and is truly the king of all aviation media. He's travel editor for CBS News, has won multiple Emmys, and has a PBS show called The Travel Detective with Peter Greenberg. In addition, he produces and hosts a series of television specials called The Royal Tour and broadcasts Eye on Travel, a satellite radio show from a different location every week. Peter exhausts me and inspires me and is a dear friend and it is a delight to turn the tables on you and welcome you to our program. Well, listen, thank you for reading the introduction that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> if only. It would be shorter if you wrote it. Yeah, probably. If you edit it. Well, Peter, you're obviously a very decorated reporter who's covered Vietnam, Patty Hearst, and thousands of other big stories. Like Scott said, you've won Emmys, you ran TV programming for a time at Paramount. Why do you find airlines so fascinating? What is it about this industry that holds your attention? Well, it actually runs in my family. My grandfather started as a Russian immigrant and then started reporting for William Randolph Hearst as the original like star reporter. But in 1939, he left the paper and went to work for as an assistant, actually the chief assistant for a guy named Donald Douglas and built Douglas Aviation, stayed there through the advent of the jet age. And then in 1961, when he retired from Douglas, he didn't retire. He became commissioner for a small little place called LAX. 
and uh, he built it. And so when I was growing up, I was surrounded by, first of all, model airplanes of everything that Douglas made. And then when I came out to California to work for Newsweek at the ripe, ripe young age of 21, all the people that he that used to work for him at the airport were then running the airport. They all remembered me as little Peter. And uh, for a period of time, which is we could call it the golden age, I had the run of LAX. So I got a chance to learn everything from the inside out. It's a it's an amazing story, and and I think uh, sometimes you you still go there and see his picture on the wall. In fact, um, his his plaque is up on every terminal building uh, because all those terminal buildings were done, including that the famous uh, the Arch Restaurant there in the middle uh, were all done under his uh, under his reign. And fortunately, they've been updated just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, fortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Peter, you recently offered some New Year wishes for airports, hotels, airlines, and cruise ships. What would you like to see change in 2023? Well, let's start with my philosophy that the people who build and design hotels have never stayed in one. The people who design airports have never flown. And uh, and I really believe that has to be true because uh, common sense is lacking. Uh, let me Let me start with airports. I mean, why do we go to an airport? Do you know anybody in the planet who gets up in the morning excited to go to an airport? No, they're excited to get through it. And because their whole idea is to get through it as fast as possible, get on the plane and get to where they, they need or want to go. And airports aren't designed that way because the airport business model, I think, is flawed. Uh, it's based on now revenue generated from retail. So you know, by the same token, here's the here's the second question. Do you know anybody who gets up in the morning going, I can't wait for a fine dining experience at the airport, or I can't wait for luxury retail shopping at the airport? No, they just want to get through it. And and as they redesign all the terminals, you just mentioned LAX, it's all based on retail and running the gauntlet of stores to get to your gate, where they don't put in people movers that work. They put in carpets that are abrasive, uh, that you can't even drag your, your rollerboards on without doing the baton death march. And it doesn't really work. In LA, I know that they've, they've upgraded the terminals. They're building a train system to the airport. There's no one I know in LA who ever takes the train. And, and from anywhere, you know, it's interesting. I've lived in LA since 1971, and I've never gotten on a bus. You know why? I have no idea where they go. And I'm convinced if I ever get on one, they'll never find me. So the whole idea of an airport is, let's go back to a a realistically simple definition of what an airport's supposed to be. And, you know, let's get, let's get creative here. Number one, where do you find baggage carts when you least need them? You need baggage carts at the gates. When people come off planes, they're schlepping their entire household. And yet you don't get one until you get to the baggage claim. And baggage claim, you walk eight feet with the cart and you give it up and you have to pay for it. Wi-Fi at airports for years was draconian. I mean, I can keep going, but my wish list is just common sense and getting back to a definition of terms as to why people use an airport, what they really want out of a hotel, what they want out of a rental car, what they want of an airplane experience. And it's not difficult to ask because at the end of the day, why do you know, we know when we go to the airport to get through it. You know, all those cute little rocking chairs that you see at airports like Charlotte, and it's a lovely touch, but it's sending a, a, the wrong message. The message it's sending is, you're going to be here a while. And that's not really what I went to the airport you know, to experience. 
That idea of common sense, Peter, makes so much sense and could apply to so many businesses, too. I love it. Who's the most fascinating person in travel you've ever covered and why? Well, Ben, you might agree with this. I mean, I go back to some of the great legendary CEOs of the airlines, you know, the Bob Crandalls, the Gordon Bethunes, uh, even going back to the Juan Trips. I mean, these guys really understood it from the ground up. And I speak not just as a, as a reporter, but also as a passenger. You knew exactly. And, and by the way, I, I get the same feedback from the employees of those airlines. Uh, you knew exactly where you stood with them. You know, there, there was no, you know, uh, doublespeak. Uh, whether you liked what they said or not, you knew exactly where you stood with them. And out of that came innovation. Out of that came respect. And, out of the, and of course, out of that came legacy. To sit in a room with Bob Crandall is, is a tutorial. You learn everything. You know, Peter, that, it's, it's really interesting to hear you say that after the common sense uh, discussion we just had, because I think all of, of those folks, and I'd throw uh, Herb Kelleher in there oh, too, absolutely. Um, uh, all of those folks had a great deal of common sense. They managed with a great deal of common sense. And, you mentioned uh, Herb Kelleher. I remember my first interview with him. It was at an old hangar at, at, at Love Field where the roof leaked and the, and the rain came in. And he wanted to do the interview at 7.30 in the morning, which I thought was interesting. So I got there and, and I got to his office, which was, you know, nothing special, except on the desk were a bottle of Jack Daniels, excuse me, a bottle of wild turkey. What am I talking about? It was a bottle of wild turkey and two jars of macadamia nuts. And he was halfway through the, his first pack of cigarettes. And by the time the interview ended, an hour and a half later, the wild turkey bottle was empty. I didn't have anything. Um, the cigarette pack was empty and the jars of nuts were empty. And I learned a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we asked about the most fascinating person. What's the most fascinating story you've covered? Ooh. Well, one of the most fascinating stories I covered actually goes back to 1961. It had a repeat in 1979, and some would argue it's still being played out today. Um, I covered the worst crash in American history, which obviously was also the worst crash in American Airlines history. It was the crash of American Flight 191 on May 25th, 1979, the Friday of Memorial Day weekend. And what was fascinating to me about that story more than any other story was there was a passenger on that plane whose brother I met after the crash as I was trying to figure out, as we all were, what the probable cause was and what was going to come out of it. And what I learned from the brother was that back in 1961, his parents were flying on American Airlines from JFK, then called Idlewild, to Los Angeles on a 707. And uh, that plane crashed. Same airline, 17 or 18 years apart, and the same behavior after the crash by the airline and their attorneys, as we all tried to figure out what happened and how so many interested parties were trying to obstruct that pursuit. And, uh, and, and it was his search for the truth in both cases. Uh, I mean, imagine yourself going through a double loss like that. Um, and what we learned about the DC-10. You know, it wasn't a faulty airplane. It was a great airplane. 
Uh, it's still flying today for FedEx. And those are former American Airlines planes. Uh, it was a decision made by one airline in terms of violating maintenance procedures that the FAA let them do. And then the other airlines that were operating the plane, that would be Continental and, uh, and United at the time, decided, well, if American Airlines could violate those procedures, we can too, because it'll save money. And it was the investigation into what happened, why the plane was grounded, and the unique relationship between the FAA and the airlines they're supposed to regulate that calls a lot into question, including up until today as well. That's a great story, Peter. It may be the same answer, but what's the show you're most proud of doing? Oh, boy. Well, the one I'm the most proud of doing was something that I stumbled into. I went to the University of Wisconsin and uh, was bumping into another friend of mine who went to the University of Wisconsin as well. And we were in Washington, D.C., literally having lunch. And we were walking down the street and we bumped into another friend of ours from Wisconsin. We said, hey, we haven't seen you in a while. What are you doing? He said, well, I'm an attorney now and I'm working as a conservator for a number of children. I said, well, what's that? And he started telling us the story. And that led us to an amazing investigation of one of the last flights out of Vietnam on a C-5A carrying hundreds of Vietnamese orphans that had been adopted out by U.S. families at the conclusion of the Vietnam War about four or five days before Saigon fell. And the story that we then discovered, which was both horrendous and amazing, and took us into the deepest regions of government and, air and, and manufacturers and politics and lawyers, um, was, uh, was an amazing story because that last flight that was sent to rescue those orphans was done as a, as a um, well, as a, as, a, as a gamer, if you will, uh, as a publicity stunt by Lockheed to show the C-5A was capable of doing sorts, all sorts of missions so they could get more appropriations from Congress to build more. Here's the problem. The plane they sent, like many of those C-5As, was defective. And we had C-9s, that's the Air Force version of the DC-9, those are ambulance planes at Clark Air Force Base that could have easily been sent, and they were medically equipped with staff, and they were told to stand down. They were sending the C-5A. And you may remember what happened. That plane was loaded up with over 500 people. In the upper deck and the lower deck, there were no seats for these kids. They were strapped down with bungee cords. And uh, the plane takes off. Uh, and remember, all of these kids have been pre-adopted out to parents waiting for them back in the United States. And at about 20,000 feet, because of the defectiveness of the plane, the rear cargo door blows out, cutting off all the hydraulics, rapid depressurization. Uh, he had nothing left. The captain had nothing left but, but throttle. And he was able to turn the plane around, declare an emergency, but he was losing altitude and couldn't control it. And he ended up in a, a landing, not even landing, crashing into a rice paddy at about 260 knots, about 120 knots faster than a normal landing speed. And uh, a, a lot of people were killed, but a lot of those kids in the upper deck survived. But survived is in quotes, because when they lost pressure, there was no oxygen for those kids. The plane wasn't properly equipped. And they each suffered 
something called MBD, minimal brain dysfunction. But nobody knew it because the minute they were then airlifted back out because Saigon was falling and adopted out to their parents, each of those parents individually first, and then they formed a group when they realized they had a common thread, made a terrifying discovery. These kids had a real problem mentally. And they went back to Lockheed and they went back to the to the Defense Department and and the United States government and Lockheed in lockstep made the defense that these kids weren't damaged by the crash. They were damaged by the war, which was a statistical and medical impossibility because the kids were all examined medically before they even boarded the plane. And uh, we heard about the story. And we heard about it nine years after it happened because it had been locked up in legal cases with nobody making any progress and these kids needing medical attention. And we did it as a 2020 special. And I'm happy to report the next day, Lockheed wrote a huge check. Uh, and those kids then got medical attention. But I mean, that to me was an amazing story. And a, and a really heartwarming thing when you can do a story that does make a difference in people's lives as, as tragic as, as that was. You know, we spend too much time chasing fire trucks and not dealing with the fire. So when you can actually deal with that, as you say, Scott, it does make a difference. Yeah. Let's talk about travelers. What, what do you think is the biggest mistake that travelers keep making, if, if there is one? Um, and, and I'm curious, do you, you find that stories repeat over and over again or that people learn and, and things change? Do, do airlines learn from their past mistakes? Do travelers learn from their past mistakes? How much time do we have? Oh, yeah. my well, let me start with this. I don't think people do learn because it's a double-edged sword here. I'm a big fan of a word that starts with a letter C, and it's called conversation. And yet we have an entire culture that doesn't know how to have one, refuses to have one, is afraid to have one, and as a result, goes online. Well, going online doesn't mean your questions get answered. It doesn't mean you get the information you need. Uh, it's basically transactional, and it's transactional without portfolio. And we're steered that way by the industry, and yet we've come to accept it. And anytime there's a problem, whether there's a pandemic or a weather problem, we saw the recent meltdown at Southwest, at the end of the day, it gets down to the fact that either nobody had a conversation or they didn't have enough people there to provide the conversation. And either way you look at it, that's a recipe for disaster. And that's what happens. So, Peter, let's talk about you as a traveler. You've been constantly on the go for decades. Do you find stories in your own travels? And does it take a toll on you personally to be living such a peripatetic life? Well, you know, I spend about 300 days a year in the air. Uh, I'm traveling about 450,000 miles a year, and I'm certainly not doing it to get the mileage, <laughs> uh, which is another issue. But uh, at one point, and I did this before I even started writing about travel when I was a correspondent for Newsweek for seven years. I was always the guy with the suitcase in the trunk of my car. I was always racing to the scene of something. So I learned to do this at an early age. I live in four places now. So I could almost make the claim that I'm almost home a lot of the time. But the reality is uh, it's a different and unconventional lifestyle. And so you asked if it takes a toll. 
It does, because I have to work very hard to maintain my friendships because I'm physically not there all the time. I make a list every night of about 80 people I want to call. And of those 80 people, 60 of them have nothing to do with anything I'm working on. There are people I just want to say hi to. I have no agenda whatsoever because if I don't, I'm not going to stay. I'm not going to, I'm going to lose them. And that's part of the problem that you have in distancing when you travel the way that I do. And uh, that's the downside. Here's the upside. I now can say I'm a citizen of the world. I feel that literally. You can airdrop me anywhere. And my street sense may not tell me where to go, but it sure tells me where not to go. But I also know when I land who I'm going to call that day and see for dinner that night and pick up where we last left off as if nothing has changed. And I'm always amazed by, by the, 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 well, I feel lucky because I, I get a chance to do that. And at the same time, you can get emotional and realize that with that kind of schedule, every time I leave a place, I always look over my shoulder one last time because you can take nothing for granted. So I'm always convinced that every time I leave a place, it's the last time I'm going to see it. If, uh, if you were an airline CEO, what would you change? Oh, boy. Here's what I'd change. I would change the basic philosophy that it's not my job to keep Wall Street happy. It's my job to keep travelers happy. Because if our customers are happy, Wall Street will be thrilled. But I'd start at the, at the, at the bottom up. Every aspect and job uh, category of that airline, I would be spending time with. I wouldn't be sitting in the boardroom and I wouldn't be sitting at my office. And I'd first go to the pilots and I'd say, I'd like you guys to do me a favor, but first I'm going to tell you what I've done. Uh, I'm assuming that, that uh, I am, I'm a CEO that I was able to cut my own deal. And here's my deal. No salary for three years, no bonus for three years. The only thing I'd ask the airline to do is to lease me an apartment where the airline is based and give me a car and a driver when I need it, period. And then three days a week, I'd fly the line without telling anybody which flight I was on. And then I'd go to the pilots and I'd say, guys and women, here's what I need from you. I want you to fly 15 more hours a month. But in 18 months, when we turn the airline around, every give back you've given, you're getting back. Every wage concession you've given, you're getting back. I do the same thing with the flight attendants. I do the same thing with the mechanics. I'd lead by example. I'd fly in coach, and after the flight attendants made their PAs, I'd make one and let everybody on the plane know where I was sitting and that they'd be welcome to come and talk to me, tell me what we're doing right, tell me what we're doing wrong. Then I'd change the entire frequent flyer program. What's the point of a loyalty program that doesn't reward people for their loyalty? And I wouldn't start a run on the bank. It wouldn't be something crazy like that. I would just change one item of the program, one item alone, and say that if you, Ben, or you, Scott, have earned the miles and you want to go to Chicago next week, if there's a seat on the plane, you get it. I wouldn't restrict seats for for, for revenue passengers. It's first come, first serve. That's not going to start a, a run on the bank. It lets people know that if I tell you there are no seats available on the plane, there really are no seats available on the plane. And yet, if you have the mileage and there's a seat available and you got there before I got there, it's yours. And what traveler wouldn't want to be loyal to an airline like that, that respected them for the definition of the loyalty program that started it? Uh, 
So that's a few things I'd start doing. A lot of common sense in that, Peter. Now, when I was at Spirit, we made some dramatic changes to the airline. The media wasn't always kind to us about stuffing our planes full of seats or not allowing the seats to recline or unbundling. And you were fairly critical of Spirit at that time, too, even though you're always fair and very nice. Do you now, many years later, see a role for this kind of ultra low cost carrier in the business? Or do you think that's still too much? Is there a role to be played? Absolutely. The biggest problem, Ben, is not in what you were doing at Spirit. It was how it was being communicated. And, and the reason for that is getting back to just basics. Why do people fly? I do not fly for the rich Corinthian leather. I do not fly for the wine list. I do not fly for the Broadway show tunes. The flight attendants will not be singing on board, by the way. I fly to go from point A to point B and not die. Interesting concept, right? But very simple. So where airlines get in trouble, not necessarily just spirit, but most airlines, is they market a promise they can't deliver. They, they, they create expectations that cannot be you know, pursued, and yet people get disappointed. So all of a sudden, in that sea of unrealistic expectations comes spirit that says, hey, by the way, you know, our seats don't recline. And if you want to check a bag, it's going to cost you this. Um, and if you, want to, if you want a soft drink, it's going to cost you this. And the people who've already been beaten up by the major airlines for failing to deliver the promise of all the other things get crazy about spirit. That's what I think happened. Um, and the reality is most of the people, who, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, and you and I did a story together on this, uh, but you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, you know, most of the people who fly spirit may only fly three times a year. It's, it's not that you have the world's most robust frequent flyer program. Uh, and they're flying for a reason. They're flying because of price. You know, in the, in the wake of the Southwest Airlines meltdown, how many times did you hear, or Scott, did you hear customers saying, I'm never going to fly Southwest again? That's a lie. Because at the end of the day, what are people motivated by? They're motivated by price. And when, when, you know, when things settle down, even the angriest passengers who were stranded for four days, my guess is they'll be back flying Southwest. And, you know, the biggest, the biggest issue I think that Spirit has right now, if the JetBlue deal goes through, is whether Spirit will still be around. Um, I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, but that leaves Frontier to be the ultra low cost carrier. And either way you look at it, you, both Spirit and Frontier have done very, very well because lately you've been able to clearly define not just what you're promising them, but also what they're not getting. So that people aren't disappointed. So shifting gears a bit, we speak about business travel a lot on the show. Um, do you agree that it's permanently changed? And, and if so, how? I'll give you a qualified yes on that. Uh, it's, it's different between internal and external. Business is always going to stay competitive. Otherwise, they won't be in business. So if you're the sales department of IBM, and you've, you've had a, a, you know, a company policy since the pandemic that there's no corporate travel, and you find out that the sales team from Xerox is back on the road, you're going back on the road. 
And we're going to see business travel come back in 2023 much faster than we expect. Where it's not going to come back is internal, meaning if I'm in the parts department of IBM, I don't necessarily have to travel to talk to the marketing guys. That may still be done on Zoom. You know, and corporate retreats may not be as big a deal. But in terms of meeting your customers, it doesn't take a, a, a genius to figure out that if you get on the plane and go visit the customer and I don't, you're going to make the sale. And you have about a 90% chance of making it. So I think that part of business travel is coming back. Meetings and conventions are going to come back because people love them. They want face contact. They want, they want people-to-people moments. And uh, you, you know, Zoom can't do that. In, in the news business, we're particularly uh, disadvantaged because everybody's working remotely these days. And at least half the stories that we would have done, we're not doing because I can't walk down the hall and stick my head into your office and say, you know, we got to do this. Um, Zoom doesn't take that place and it will never take that place of spontaneity. Um, And I'm worried about that. But in terms of business travel, it will be back bigger than ever with the exceptions that I listed. Very smart thinking, Peter. Well, United Airlines recently called themselves the best airline in the world. What's your reaction to that, Peter? (laughs) There is no best airline in the world. That's the news bullet of the day. I I look at airlines by route. I was was saying, what's your favorite airline? I said, give me the route. I'll tell you my favorite airline on that route, and I'll tell you why. I think that's the only way to approach it. There is no one best airline in the world because I can find at least three flights at United that have always sucked. And I can do the same thing for Delta and American and Spirit. I mean, you know what your you know what your dog flights are. So you can't say that you have the best airline. No, you, you may have the best airline if you're flying from LA to Chicago because United might own that route and do it better. But that doesn't mean United does the best route from LA to Tokyo. Not necessarily the case. So last week, we made some predictions for the industry for 2023. Care to make one yourself? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're going to see, other than the JetBlue Spirit deal, uh, a lot of consolidation among the majors. I think that's all been done. I think we're going to see a complete uh, reorientation of airplanes because we're seeing so many communities in America losing air service because those 50-seaters are no longer economically viable. And, uh, you know, based on, you know, gas prices and crew costs and operating costs, they'd have to be 95% full to break even. So you're seeing secondary and tertiary markets losing service, as opposed to Europe, where you can actually do train service. You know, if you, if you can't get to uh, Topeka and you can't get to Toledo and you can't get to Eureka, California, there's not really a train. So we're going to have to either see new aircraft coming in that can be justified on those routes, or we're going to see some real challenges in the viability of those cities themselves. Because without airlift, cities die. Uh, If you're running a business in Toledo, Ohio, uh, you're already at a disadvantage if American, United, and Delta don't fly there. Your customers can't get to you and you can't get out. And if you're a leisure traveler and you have to drive an hour and a half to get to Detroit, just to be able to fly out, you may consider flying or, or, or traveling altogether. So I think the real interesting focus this year is going to be how we're going to save service in those secondary and tertiary markets. 
Peter, this has been terrific. You have so many insights from so many years of reporting on travel. What's next for Peter Greenberg? What do you want to do that you haven't done yet? What's the future for your travel productions and reporting? Well, we're continuing to do the Royal Tour with Heads of State. We're going to do another two or three this year. Uh, We have about another three television shows on the air. In addition to that, there's Travel Detective and there's Hidden. It appears on both PBS and and Amazon and Apple TV+. But in terms of my personal bucket list, you know, there are 196 countries in the world. I've been to 152 of them. And as much as I want to boast, there's still another 44 I may never get to. But I can boast and say, in, in a sort of sad way, That 152 represents 151 more than most Americans, since only about 40% of Americans even have a passport. That's sad. I'd like to see that change. But the one thing that's left on my bucket list, which I may never get to do, is, and Scott knows that I love to fly, and I've I've actually flown with Scott, but the one experience, and I've flown a lot of military equipment in the right seat or the back seat, but the one thing I've never done And by the way, as I said before, I may never get to do it, are the three words that both terrify me and excite me, and I won't be doing it, I'll be in the back seat, trust me, is three words, night carrier landing. That's all I want to do. (laughs) That's, (laughs) uh, and I may never get to do it, but that's, that's, uh, that's my wish list for now and forever. (laughs) Well, good luck with that one, Peter. Uh, Peter, this has been terrific. I want to thank you so much. Um, I want to thank you. I was really struck with with the the conversation about maintaining friendships. And uh, just a a personal note, after my wife died, Peter Greenberg called regularly to check in, and I appreciated that so much. I, I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of that and, and for doing this with us. Um, it's great to talk with you and wish you uh, good health and good travels for the coming year. And right back at both of you guys, and I hope forward to seeing you in person very soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Peter. You got it, guys. We certainly hope so too, Peter. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Our sponsors make Airlines Confidential possible and we are very grateful for their support. We want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Our question this week, Scott, comes from our regular listener, Old Crokey from Australia. Welcome on board, Scott. No longer do we need to read your words. We'll hear them directly from you. Your broad industry knowledge and honed questioning skills are something that can only make for a valuable addition to the podcast. Should it be an opposing view of that to Ben's, don't hold back. 
regarding the Southwest meltdown, do you believe there should be some departures from the board and management of the company to take responsibility for such a disastrous operating failure? Or should those who know the business intimately stay to repair the damaged reputation? What do you think, Scott? Should heads roll? It's a really interesting question. Uh, I'm not sure if they should, but I think the answer is clearly no, I don't think they will. I would note that Bob Jordan said the board has already launched its own investigation, so that might change. But Bob Jordan has been in the CEO's chair less than a year, and Andrew Watterson had only been chief operating officer a couple months when all this hit. Watterson did make some promotions after the debacle to tighten control between schedule planning and schedule execution. Overall, I think the board gives both Jordan and Watterson a pass on this. Now, if it happens again, you might see changes. I agree with you, Scott. Hey, before we sign off, there's a project that I think some of our listeners might be interested in, Scott. There's an effort going on by a group called Dynamic Aviation that is restoring the first ever airplane that was used as Air Force One. It was used by President Dwight Eisenhower. And what they're doing is they're restoring this airplane and they want to make it like a flying museum where they can fly it around, show people what the first Air Force One was give them an idea of what the geopolitical forces were around the world at this time. And it's a very worthwhile project. For anyone interested in learning more or donating to this, just Google the first Air Force One restoration project. Sounds real interesting to me. That's fascinating, Ben. I love that. If you've got questions about airlines and air travel, send them to us using the question and comment form at the bottom of the page at airlinesconfidential.com, and we'll try to answer them in future episodes. With that, Ben, it's been great talking to you. Uh, Loved hearing from Peter and uh, loved hearing from Bob Jordan, and I look forward to uh, talking more next week. Sounds great. A huge thanks from me to Peter as well. And we'll see everyone next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.